Hello and welcome to Our American States, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. This podcast is all about legislatures, the people in them, the policies, process, and politics that shape them. I'm your host, Ed Smith. What we were finding was that these savings, which were actually intended for the customer at the pharmacy counter, were being pocketed by the supply chain. That was Representative Aman Judah of Colorado, one of my guests on this podcast, the fourth in a series looking at efforts in state legislatures related to prescription drug costs. I sat down with Representative Judah to talk about legislation passed in her state requiring pharmaceutical benefit managers and health plans to demonstrate how rebates collected from manufacturers are used to reduce health insurance premiums. The legislation also requires certain state-regulated health plans to implement copayment-only structures for all cost-sharing tiers in their drug formularies. Also joining for this episode is Colleen Becker of NCSL. She tracks legislation related to prescription drug costs and was instrumental in putting this series of podcasts together. She talked about the different types of legislation passed in 22 and what you can expect to see coming out of legislatures on this issue in the future. Here's our discussion, starting with Representative Judah. Representative Judah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, We're going to talk today about legislation you sponsored in Colorado to help reduce the cost of prescription drugs to consumers. Now, I've looked at this legislation. It's got a lot of provisions in it. So I'm going to ask you to briefly tell everybody about that bill and how it might reduce out-of-pocket costs for your constituents. So 1370 is really intended on making healthcare more dependable and affordable for Coloradans, which I think is something we all want and need to work for. And so 1370 really had four main provisions and goals. So the first thing is that it set out to reduce prescription drug costs and making sure that those rebates that pharmaceutical companies advertise are actually getting passed on to the consumer. Because what we were finding was that these savings, which were actually intended for the customer at the pharmacy counter, were being pocketed by the supply chain, whether it was insurance companies or pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. uh, We really wanted to put a stop to this and make sure that prescription drugs were affordable. So the other thing that the bill will do is that it cuts costs and ensures that there's better access to medications and preventing insurance companies from dropping those medications in the middle of their plan year. So, for example, if there was a medication that that patient thought they were covered for, we were finding that sometimes those medications would be dropped and that patient wouldn't even have a notice of that being the case. So on that note, it actually kind of applies to doctors as well. So it requires at least 25% of plans have a set dollar amount of co-pays rather than these like unpredictable percentage-based co-insurance payments. And so what we were also finding, just like with their prescription drugs, was that people would make an appointment with a doctor that they thought was in-network only to find out that they were not in network, they were dropped, and then they would get a surprise bill from that provider. So, you know, we really wanted to make sure we streamlined this process and people really had full transparency of what their plan actually covered. And that wouldn't change in the middle of their plan year. 
Another thing in the final point that it does, which is, you know, something that is personal to me, I live with epilepsy. And I know this happens a lot with neurologists having to go through prescribing step therapy. And so step therapy is essentially when doctors know that drug X is going to work for their patient, but insurance companies are making them go for the cheapest drug and then the cheaper drug before they get to the most expensive drug, which again is the drug that actually works. And so the bill says, listen, sometimes step therapy is actually needed. The doc and the patient need to go through different medications to find out what works for them. But if the doctor knows what's going to work for their patient, they should be able to prescribe the the drug that they need, which ultimately saves that patient from going through this process every single time. And it can potentially save their lives. What we did was create an exemption process for docs to apply to, to say, you know what, my patient doesn't have to go through step therapy. Let's change that and let me go straight to the drug that I know will work for them. They go through a a short process, it's approved, and then we can save that, that doctor and that patient time and potentially pain that they would have to endure otherwise. Well, those are some excellent points. This is the fourth podcast I've done this year about trying to cut prescription drug costs. And I've spoken with legislators all over the country. And I've just learned a couple new things right there. Now, as I understand it, your bill also includes a provision that would allow the State Department of Health to use its all-payers claim database, an APCD, to connect an analysis of rebates received by carriers uh, along the lines of what you were just talking about. Can you tell us what an APCD is? Also, how that information collected may help guide future policy decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So APCD is the Colorado All-Payers Claim Database, and it's a comprehensive database of healthcare claims that covers most Coloradans' healthcare plans and their claims. So it's really meant to shed light on the healthcare costs that bring uh, much needed transparency to an unfortunate broken system. And it's managed by a Colorado nonprofit that provides really helpful, insightful data for policymakers like myself and the general public to make sure that we're making informed decisions and that we know what we're covered with. In talking with other legislators about regulation related to drug costs, I know to to put it mildly, there are often differences of opinion, whether it's with the industry, maybe with other stakeholders, other legislators. And I'm wondering what sort of challenges or pitfalls you faced in getting this legislation passed and, and how you handled that, how you navigated that. You know, this isn't my first rodeo in healthcare policy, and I'm incredibly proud of the changes that I've partnered with other legislators on to really have a shift in healthcare policy and making sure that healthcare is a human right that is honored and realized. You know, in my first term, I passed the Colorado option with Representative Roberts, which was the largest healthcare bill in Colorado history. I passed a medical debt forgiveness bill, which is, I think, something a lot of Americans are being crippled with. There was this bill as well, really making sure that people had access to affordable medications. You know, when we think about changing the healthcare system, it can seem really daunting. And there are major pitfalls when we talk about changing healthcare. 
and most of all, going against for-profit stakeholders, which is, you know, in my mind, one of the biggest hurdles to, to conquer when we are doing stakeholdering. But that said, even when we knew we would be out lobbied, we also stood behind the fact that this was common sense policy and solutions to improve the healthcare system and access for the affordability we all need. The biggest strategy that I always lean on and that we did with with this bill was building a very big, strong coalition. And that coalition for this bill was was made up of 60 organizations uh, from patient advocacy groups and providers and businesses and organizations that were all directly impacted by this whether currently or in the past, and wanted to see that change. And so building that robust coalition and and really an army of amazing volunteers with lived experience that were related to barriers in healthcare uh, helped us really overcome the challenges that we were facing while also really influencing the votes of our members because of those lived experiences. Well, that's very interesting because I was going to ask you about lessons learned, the sort of thing in CSL, of course, and this podcast always likes to touch on with legislators after you've uh, been through this or are continuing to be in the middle of uh, a certain type of legislation. So one lesson learned is the value of coalition building. Are, are there other lessons learned that you'd share with people around the country who might want to pursue similar legislation? Absolutely. You know, we have to be unapologetic about furthering people's human human rights through policy. And I know that sometimes when we think of human rights, it can be on an international scale. But as legislators, we also have an obligation through our positions to make sure that our constituents and their human rights are being protected. And so when I am in that building, I am incredibly unapologetic about protecting the needs of Coloradans and uplifting their lived experiences and making sure that the members who will be voting on this policy not only recognize but respect that lived experience. And so by way of that, that is also at the core of what I do is making sure that we are focusing on common sense policy solutions, even when you are going up against super high powered industry. And so, you know, like you said, and like I said, you cannot ever underestimate the importance of a robust coalition. And having that coalition behind you is is not only what keeps you going and motivates you when things are going really hard, and you know you're you're sometimes losing faith, but uh, when you when you sit down and you're grounded with this coalition and you think about what they've had to go through, it it. It uplifts you, it uplifts the process, and and it makes you want to kind of charge through and and make sure you get it across the finish line. And I really want to thank NCSL for being, you know, very helpful with the resources that I've needed in in my bill process and and other legislators that I know we've leaned on uh, to make sure that we are not reinventing the wheel. We are leaning on precedents, maybe from around the country, but also understanding what could be a solution that hasn't been done before and that we are setting the precedence for other states in common sense policy. Well, Representative, thank you so much for sharing your experience there in Colorado and your time with us. Take care. Thank you so much for having me.
I'll be right back after this with Colleen Becker from NCSL. Rely on State Legislature's news on the NCSL website for the freshest takes on people, places, and policy. Find out what states are doing about the biggest issues of the day. And check out the Across the Aisle and My District features for compelling stories of bipartisanship and special places and events. Make SLN your daily go-to for all the hottest legislative topics and trends. Just click on the News tab on the NCSL website, www.ncsl.org. Colleen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ed. I'm glad to be here. Well, we've worked this past year, and this is the fourth podcast we've done, talking about state legislative efforts to control prescription drug costs. There's certainly been a lot of talk about the high cost of prescription drugs over the years, and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about when legislators at the state level first got involved in looking at this issue and considering what changes they can make at the state level. You know, Ed, as you and I both know, prescription drug access and affordability has been on the radar of state legislators for many, many years. So this topic itself is nothing new. However, how lawmakers have chosen to address those issues has really evolved over time. I've been impressed this past year in talking with legislators around the country at the level of complexity involved in trying to both just understand prescription drug costs, let alone trying to come up with legislation that would uh, would regulate it. So I wonder if you, given the amount of time you've spent looking at this, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what action states took during 2022. Sure. So... I'm going to do a quick plug for the the database that we have. So NCSL has a public-facing database called the Prescription Drug Bill Tracking Database, and it's where we track both introduced and enacted legislation in about a dozen different topic areas. In 2022, we tracked over 430 bills in 45 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, and of those, 68 bills in 27 states passed. So from those numbers, you can probably, you know, take away that there was wide variety in how those bills address different issues. So that said, a few common themes emerged. And for the purpose of the purposes of this conversation, we can very loosely group them into a couple of buckets. So those that affect drug prices, policies that impact drug costs, either for consumers or state budgets. And then this one bucket that crosses both prices and costs, and that's reforms for pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. I've been impressed by the bipartisan nature of this. There seem to be Republicans and Democrats all across the country, all of whom are interested in addressing this issue and and have told me in these podcasts how important it is to their constituents. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those categories you just mentioned and how those played out in actual legislation. Sure, of course. So first, I'm going to dive into the bucket that I mentioned that kind of addresses prices. And policies to address high drug prices often lie with the federal government. But um, there have been some strategies pursued at the state level. So for instance, many states have explored price and cost transparency, where data is required from various supply chain actors, such as manufacturers, PBMs, and health plans. Over a dozen states implemented some sort of or have implemented some sort of data collection effort. We've also seen interest in prescription drug affordability boards, which are also known as PDABs. And that's where an independent non-governmental body is tasked with identifying and evaluating high cost drugs in the state. 
The next bucket of strategies we've seen lawmakers take action is PBM reform. And I think many of your listeners already know what that acronym means, but quick definition for those that may not, it's pharmacy benefit managers, and they are third-party administrators of prescription drug benefits for a number of payers, such as health plans, large employers, that's just naming a few. In the past few years, we've been tracking a lot of legislation around PBM reform. And in fact, about 30 to 40% of both introduced and enacted legislation we've tracked in the database focused on PBMs. Again, lots of variation in the approaches that states have taken. Some decided to pass legislation to require PBMs to either register or obtain licensure in the state. Some banned the use of gag clauses in PBM contracts which allow pharmacists to tell patients about lower cost options at the pharmacy counter. And others explored using a reverse auction process, and that's to get the best deal in their state employee health plan or PBM contracts. A little explainer on that as well. In a reverse auction, PBMs compete by submitting offers anonymously through an online portal, and the lowest offer is awarded the contract. And I think reverse auctions are a nice segue into the last bucket of policies I'll mention, which are those that aim to reduce costs. So for state costs, in in addition to PBM reforms, alternative payment models or value-based or outcomes-based payment models are one option states are exploring to manage prescription drug costs in their Medicaid budgets. And then also entering into bulk purchasing pools is another type of strategy being pursued. On the consumer end, restricting the use of copay adjustment programs, that's receiving considerable legislative interest. And those are programs that restrict the use of a manufacturer's copay coupon uh, coupon from counting toward a patient's annual out-of-pocket maximum, like a deductible. At least 15 states and Puerto Rico now have laws on the books that require payments made on behalf of a patient be applied to their annual out-of-pocket cost sharing. Speaking of cost sharing, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that how much a person pays for their monthly supply of insulin or how much they pay for their supplies is still a large concern for our members. Yeah, I think the insulin issue was such a big headline at the federal level this year as well. There was insulin changes for Medicare recipients, as I as I recall, but I don't think there, there was not an across-the-board uh, cap on insulin payments. But what was so interesting in talking with legislators uh, is there are many, many states where there is at least some legislation that affects insulin. And that seems to be uh, maybe a, a, maybe that will be an issue that will be ongoing. Speaking of which, I don't think there was a single person who, when I asked them, well, are you all done with prescription drug legislation in your state, didn't say, absolutely not. We've just gotten started. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? What's what's coming up in 2023? What do you think in the years ahead is going to be the trend in states in terms of looking at this issue? Well, you just kind of touched on it a little bit that I think a lot of folks are wondering how the prescription drug pricing provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act might affect the prescription drug market. A lot of attention is focused on the provision allowing the federal government to negotiate negotiate prices paid in Medicare. And then, as you just mentioned, those uh, those caps on insulin in the Medicare market as well. But we're not going to see how that begins to play out until 2026. The first provisions that take effect will be the rebates that manufacturers will have to pay back to Medicare if prices rise faster than inflation. And although those are Medicaid-focused policies, lots of eyes are going to be watching to see if and how they may impact the broader prescription drug market. 
But to be honest, Ed, predicting what legislators might or might not do is something I'm not very good at, but where other areas of health policy have been divisive. And as I've just highlighted, and as you mentioned also, many prescription drug policies receive bipartisan support. And with elections now in the rear view and the influx of new lawmakers coming in with a host of new priorities, I expect we'll see some of the same strategies I mentioned percolate along with some new ideas. So lots to see. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for helping me this year to put together this series. It's such an important and, and complicated issue that I think that we're able to shed at least a little light on it. And I have no doubt that down the road, we'll be looking at this issue again. Thanks very much. Take care. Thanks, Ed. Have a good one. I've been talking with Representative Aman Judah of Colorado and Colleen Becker from NCSL about state legislative efforts to address prescription drug costs. Thanks for listening. You can check out all the podcasts from the National Conference of State Legislatures by searching for NCSL Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Tim Story, NCSL's CEO, hosts Legislatures, the Inside Story, where he focuses on leadership and legislatures. On our new podcast, Across the Aisle, host Kelly Griffin tells stories about bipartisanship in action. Also check out our special series, Building Democracy, on the colorful history of legislatures.